This is so important. Failure is not an option for the country. That's the point. It is so important. Failure is not an option for the democracy of America. Yeah, funny thing about that. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Apparently it is an option. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Who knew? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, it's the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's. WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Not to mention your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to the Bradcast, your trusted source for making sense of this mangled nation and burning world. <laughs> Doing our best. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. The uh, bad news for the Trump crime family keeps piling on today from all sides. You may be happy to learn. And frankly, I couldn't be happier about it. Lots of fresh news to cover along those lines today, as you may be happy to hear. And a fresh uh, Green News report coming up a little bit later. Yes. If time allows. <laughs> but we need to uh, we need to start here for the moment. A tale of two headlines brought to my attention today by the always astute Desiree. Thank you, Des. <laughs> Reuters, U.S. Senate Democrats fail in bid to pass voting rights bill versus CNBC. Senate Republicans block voting rights bill. Join with two Democrats to prevent filibuster change. The second of those two headlines is, of course, the correct one. The more accurate one and precise about yes. what actually happened. Correct. In fact, all 50 senators who caucus with the Democrats voted for a 51 vote majority when including a tie breaking vote from the Senate president, which is Vice President Kamala Harris, to pass critical long overdue voting rights and election subversion protection legislation. Nonetheless, after a lengthy and frankly lively welcome and long overdue debate as I saw it and a long debate itself, the Democrats ultimately failed to adopt that legislation after the party's two obstructionists to voting rights, that would be Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, joined with Republicans to block a change 
to the undemocratic filibuster rule in the Senate that would have allowed the majority to rule on voting rights in the Senate on Wednesday. Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin joined all of the Republicans on Wednesday night in blocking a temporary filibuster rule that would have allowed Democrats to pass voting rights legislation with a simple majority. You know, democracy, even while allowing opponents of American democracy to speak as long as they wanted against it. Against shoring up the right to vote and protecting elections from the subversion which is now being instituted in GOP-controlled states across the country. The nearly year-long effort to win the two over through repeated votes, speeches, endless meetings, and presidential pressure, according to TPM's Kate Riga, failed hours before the anniversary of President Joe Biden's inauguration. Well, happy anniversary, Mr. President. Love, Joe and Kirsten. The filibuster's supermajority threshold on most legislation acts as a veto for the minority party, she writes. It was injected into the public debate over a year ago when Georgia's two new senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, gave Democrats the barest possible effective majority in the upper chamber in runoff elections in the Peach State on January 5. That was the day before Trump's last deadly attempt to steal the election with a violent insurrection on January 6 of 2021. As Riga reports, Senate watchers knew then that while Democrats had finally clawed back the barest possible majority in the upper chamber, Manchin and maybe some others posed a problem a problem towards changing the filibuster to pass these laws. But there was a strategy, one which we have all been watching play out in what seemed like slow motion, frankly, over the past year, a sort of performative kabuki-like exercise moving through all the steps one by one to lead us to last night's votes in the U.S. Senate. Democrats involved Manchin intimately in every step of crafting their voting rights legislation, the nexus at which they thought their chances of swaying him on on the filibuster would be most potent. The horror of January 6 was still fresh, and former President Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election was still very recent history. When Joe Manchin opposed some parts of the marquee voting rights bill, the For the People Act, it was reworked in order to win his support. It was reworked to his specifications to only include the stuff that he wanted in the bill, which, in fact, was a lot of really good stuff that would have made passage of two bills that he claimed to uh, fully support possible. That would be the renamed Freedom to Vote Act, previously the For the People Act. It established a right to to vote by by mail and to vote early uh, in all 50 states and a national Election Day holiday and the right to a hand-marked paper ballot for every voter at the polling place. It promised an end to dark money in elections, an end to partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, among other things, in this one bill, the Freedom to Vote Act. Things that are all very, very popular among the vast majority of the American people. Separately, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act restored the Voting Rights Act's Section 5 preclearance 
by the pre- uh, federal government for laws that might have a discriminatory effect on minority voters. That was a separate law. That restoration was needed and, in fact, invited by the U.S. Supreme Court itself, which encouraged Congress to update the law after the court had gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act back in 2013, claiming that the list for which jurisdictions should be required to pre-clear their new election laws, jurisdictions with a history of racism in their elections, you know, to update that list. That list needed to be updated because, well, the court struck it down. But they didn't strike down the idea of preclearance of these new laws and invited Congress to fix the list. Now, Congress did that work with what became known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It was named after the late voting rights icon who led the work to create that legislation before he died in 2020. And who, by the way, when he died, Kirsten Cinema proudly and now ironically or hypocritically, depending on how you want to look at it, described him as her hero. Her hero, John Lewis, might be spinning in his grave today after Arizona's cinema became vocal about her devotion to the filibuster, which was historically used to block voting rights in the U.S. Senate, even as she claimed to support the underlying voting legislation that was being blocked by 50 Republicans with their filibuster of both bills. And if you think about it, the fact that Only one Republican, Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, expressed some willingness to join in support of the John Lewis part of this package, the one that fixed the Voting Rights Act after the Supreme Court broke it in 2013, but invited Congress to fix it. The fact that only one Republican was willing to do that after some 16 currently sitting senators had voted to extend the Voting Rights Act for another 25 years as recently as 2006. Just one Republican, at least for a brief second, was willing to support the law that they had sung the praises of back when George W. Bush was in office and signed that extension along with a nearly unanimous House and Senate vote to extend the law that they had refused to support On Wednesday night, all of them refused to support it. That alone should help you and, yes, Manchin and Cinema, if they weren't disingenuous cowards, to understand how the Republican Party has lurched so far to the radical authoritarian right in those few years since George W. Bush was in office. The other 48 Democratic senators, other than Manchin and Cinema, including those who previously opposed filibuster reform in previous years, they came around over this past year because of all of this, as they saw what apparently Manchin and Cinema could not or did not want to see. Almost all of the most reluctant and, yes, conservative Democratic senators cited the looming threat to American democracy as the issue that compelled them to overcome their queasiness about changing the way that the Senate functions. A pack of moderate senators, including Senators Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, Tim Kaine of Virginia, John Tester of Montana, They gathered with Manchin. They even accompanied him on his meetings with Republicans as he insisted there would be bipartisan support for these bills. 
at least for the Voting Rights Act update, right? Well, wrong, Mr. Manchin. Democrats held certain to-fail votes on the legislation, again, performative exercises aimed at showing Manchin that Republicans would only ever block the bills to expand voting rights. Any bills, any bills that would do so, any bills that would somehow expand or protect existing voting rights, even the ones uh, that he wrote, the bills that he wrote himself, like the Freedom to Vote Act, even the ones that the right-wing Supreme Court had invited Congress to fix, like the Voting Rights Act, even a bill to fix the law that all of those Republicans had supported in full just a few years ago. Other Democratic senators implored the two directly and through the press to recognize that changing a Senate rule was a price worth paying to protect democracy under assault. Voting rights activists agitated for President Joe Biden to get behind the mission full-throatedly to use the influence of the presidency to bully and cajole and force the two to join the rest of the caucus, which he did. Democratic lunch hours became forums for lectures on the history of the filibuster, with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer bringing in historians and professors to show the intransigent mansion and cinema that the filibuster is neither ancient nor is it sacred, but a fairly modern invention most famously used to block civil rights legislation. They were certainly told that the framers did not include a supermajority requirement for the U.S. Senate, even though they required it in the Constitution for other specific things, like for impeachment and treason. Hamilton and Madison in the Federalist Papers explained how the framers considered such a requirement, but had rejected it for the Senate, as the Senate ran for years with no such requirement at all, just a simple majority requirement, until after the framers had all died and the Senate began to create new rules in the upper chamber, to make things like civil rights and voting rights harder to accomplish. But all of those efforts were for naught. Nothing changed for the two obstructionist Democrats who claimed to support, claimed to support voting rights while joining Republicans in support of a Senate rule that would prevent the passage of voting rights. Finally, in mid-January, a full year after Democrats had clawed back a Senate majority, and near the anniversary of the deadly U.S. Capitol insurrection when Donald Trump tried to steal a presidential election and near Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the civil rights icon who gave his life in the fight for, among other things, voting rights for all. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced the Senate would vote on voting rights legislation after a debate on that legislation, which up until now, even that had been blocked by Senate Republicans. It took invoking a rarely used legislative trick to even allow the legislation to be debated in the Senate. Here is some of that debate on Wednesday night. We're here in the midst of a concerted effort to stop people from exercising the most fundamental right in our democracy. Because, as Reverend Warnock has put so well, some people don't want some people to vote. We're here because, after record number of voters voted to make their voices heard, there are people, sadly, that are working in every state capital to make sure it never happens again. And I note that for every one of these laws that have passed in 19 different states, it has been 
with a simple majority, state by state by state. But I speak for the state of Georgia when I say do not invoke Congressman Lewis' name to signal your virtue. While you work to erode his legacy and defy his will. I've heard a lot from our Republican colleagues about the recently passed election law in the state of Georgia. Let's be very clear, there is no one in Georgia on either side of the aisle who doubts or does not understand precisely what its purpose is. Forbidding voter registration for runoff elections, driving down the early vote period during decisive runoffs to drive up lines at majority black precincts. As he used to say, John Lewis didn't give a little blood on that bridge that day so that black Georgians would have to wait eight times longer to vote than white Georgians. The question today is, are we going to give in to a violent attack whose aim is now being pursued through partisan voter suppression laws in state legislatures? And sadly, Georgia, the same Georgia that sent me and my brother Ossoff to the Senate, not the people of Georgia, partisan state politicians, have decided to punish their own citizens for having the audacity to show up. And it isn't just about the restrictions around water and food distribution. The more fundamental question is why the line so long in the first place? And why is that the case in certain communities? I know that some Americans listening to me right now don't know what we mean because that's not your experience. But it is the experience of so many of your fellow Americans. What would I have done if I were alive during the Civil Rights Movement? I know we would all like to think that we too would have had just a small fraction just a fraction of the courage that it took for John Lewis to cross that Edmund Pettus Bridge. Well, for those of us who are fortunate enough to serve in the United States Senate in this moment, in this moral moment, we do not have to wonder. My God, he, he faced troopers on the other side crossing that bridge. We're talking about a procedural bridge. We don't have to wonder what we would have done. I submit that what we would have done back then, we are doing right now. History is watching us. Our children are counting on us. And I hope that we will have the courage to do what is right for our communities and for our country. The courage to cross this bridge, to do the hard work in this defining moral moment in America for the sake of the communities that sent us here in the first place, for the sake of the planet, for the sake of health care, for the sake of jobs, for the sake of being able to argue for the things that we care about. The courage to fight for one another. I'm still praying that we will cross that bridge. But if not tonight, we will come back again and again 
and again. Madam Vice President, I yield the floor. Senator Raphael Warnock of of, uh, Georgia. Before that, Senator Ossoff, also of Georgia, and Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota. A vote on both of the voting rights measures now combined as the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act was finally held on Wednesday night and would have passed with all Democrats voting in favor, but for it being blocked by the votes of every Republican in the Senate. When Republicans filibustered, After that, well, Democrats then moved as planned to vote on reforming the filibuster very conservatively only for this particular voting rights legislation and only to allow to continue to allow the filibuster to exist. But a filibuster that would require opponents to actually filibuster, to actually talk against the bill on the Senate floor rather than literally email in their intention to filibuster it. Just as almost all filibusters had been carried out through the 1970s. No, contrary to Senator Manchin's repeated claims, none of these anti-small-D Democratic Senate rules had been in place since the beginning of time, much less the beginning of the country. It was time, many members echoed, to get everyone on record where they stood so at least voters might know how their senators would vote so that those voters could take action or at least try to. But Cinema and Manchin quickly deflated any lingering drama well before Wednesday night's disappointing but somewhat anticlimactic vote. Cinema, in a speech just an hour before Biden arrived at the Capitol a few days ago to make a final pitch, she expressed her enduring support of a 60-vote threshold to an audience largely made up of Republicans who applauded her standing in the way of voting rights and American democracy. Manchin then followed her with a statement expressing his refusal to weaken or eliminate the filibuster, so we all knew where this was going. The tone of the conversation then changed. Major women's rights groups like Emily's List, who had been one of cinema's biggest financial supporters when she ran for the Senate, they threatened to pull their support from her if she voted to sustain the filibuster. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont started publicly entertaining the prospect of supporting primary challengers to the two. And here's just some of what Sanders had to say during debate on Wednesday night. Why would any fair-minded person be in opposition to make it easier for all citizens to vote? That's what I understood when I went to elementary school. You know, you play by the rules, you do your best, sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose. That's the process. But no one ever told me that what politics is about is working overtime to try to prevent people from voting just because they might vote against you. I regard it as a very sad day for our country, and I mean this very sincerely, that not one Republican in this body is prepared to vote for this bill. Now, I understand why that is the case. I am in politics. I got it. I know who the leader of their party is. But this I do not understand. I can understand Republicans, but this I do not understand. I do not understand why two Democrats who presumably understand the importance of the Freedom to Vote Act, and as I understand it, will vote for the Freedom to Vote Act, are not prepared to change the rules so that that bill 
could actually become law. That I do not understand. If you think this bill makes sense, and if you're worried about the future of American democracy, and if you are prepared to vote for the bill, then why are you wasting everybody's time and not voting for the rule change that allows us to pass the bill? You know, it's like inviting somebody to lunch, putting out a great spread, and saying you can't eat. <laughs> if you're going to vote for the bill, vote to change the rules. Mr. President, if we can change the rules to prevent a default on our national debt, if we can change the rules to confirm Supreme Court justices, we can certainly change the rules to save American democracy. Thank you. Well, as it turns out, they couldn't change the rules, uh, despite that delicious lunch spread. <laughs> the vote to reform the filibuster rule failed on Wednesday night after hours of those floor speeches where Democrats made the case, case after case, to scrap the rule for the legislation and Republicans warned of dire consequences if they did so. Dire consequences if Democrats dared to do what Republicans have already done time and time again, like when they scrapped the filibuster entirely to pack the U.S. Supreme Court with three of Donald Trump's lifetime appointments to the highest court on the, in the land. Nonetheless, Manchin and Cinema ultimately stayed locked into the positions that they took months ago. Manchin said on Wednesday before his vote, his hand on his heart as he addressed his blankly staring Democratic colleagues, quote, I have never wavered on this. I do not and will not attack the contents of the character of anybody who's changed their position. And I hope you would give me the same opportunity and not attack mine. And I hope that Senator Manchin's and Cinema's Names and reputations become synonymous with segregationists and voting rights, anti-voting rights activists whose names have become a mark of shame over the decades. They are both a disgrace to their parties and to their nation. So where do we go from here? Well, as we have been reporting, the fight for voting rights will now be a state-by-state-by-state -state -state slog for a while. And we will continue to cover that fight, of course. Where else do we go? Well, same place we have always gone, to the ballot box to elect more U.S. senators who support voting rights and democracy itself. I should note that all of the Democratic members of the U.S. House voted several times in favor of both pieces of this legislation. The Senate is the problem. As Senator Reverend uh, Warnock said, we will keep coming back again and again and again. The Senate is the problem. Voting for more Democratic senators, however, will not be easy. Now that Manchin and Cinema have joined all 50 Republicans to prevent as many Democrats as possible from being able to cast their vote at all this November and to have their votes counted as cast. But that is where we are, and that is how history will remember this week, at least I hope. And that is why elections matter. Much less gloomy news is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, 
Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Your sugar, your spice, your everything nice, and your daddy's Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That'll make sense in a second if you haven't guessed already. As promised, much less gloomy news in this block, Des. Oh, good. You, you can get off the floor. <laughs> you can get out from under the covers now. And, uh, much less gloomy news as the uh, Trump crime family is having a really, really, really bad week. Let's start uh, first with the news that literally broke as we were opening yesterday's broadcast because uh, it also feeds into some of today's new bad news for the Trump crime family. Barack Obama's former acting solicitor general of the United States, that would be Neil Katyal, whose job it was to argue cases on behalf of the executive branch at the Supreme Court. He tweeted on Wednesday night describing Donald Trump as, quote, the biggest loser, asking, quote, do you know how hard it is if you are a former president to lose an executive privilege claim so badly that the court doesn't even hold or oral argument? He said it's like a Democrat losing the Chicago mayoral race to a Republican. You gotta really try. <laughs> well, uh, he tried and he f- succeeded at failing, I guess. In a no uncertain terms uh, ruling, eight to one ruling, rebuffing the former president, rebuffed by his own packed and stolen U.S. Supreme Court. With all of those that he packed onto the court, by the way, voting against him, the Supreme Court is allowing the release of presidential documents sought by the bipartisan congressional committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The justices on Wednesday rejected a bid by Trump to withhold the documents from the committee under Trump's claim that he was entitled to executive privilege to withhold them, even though the actual executive... President Biden reviewed the documents in question and determined that they were not, in fact, covered by the privilege, which he waived. Following the high court's action on Wednesday, there is now no legal impediment to turning over the documents which are held by the National Archives, which reportedly has now begun to turn over what will amount to hundreds and perhaps thousands of documents, including presidential diaries, visitor logs, speech drafts, handwritten notes dealing with January 6, many of them from the files of former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So uh, what am I looking uh, the most forward to here of those documents? Well, there is reportedly a draft executive order on quote, election integrity. Hmm. Oh, boy. Whatever that might mean, whatever the uh, attempted election thieves 
of the Trump administration may mean with that phrase, including purportedly some scheme to seize, to have the military seize the nation's voting systems under some sort of national emergency. But of course, uh, even a uh, an executive order, a draft of an executive order that was never issued. Of course, they can claim that you know someone else wrote that order for Donald Trump. He had no intention of actually invoking it. It wasn't his work or other some some other such nonsense. But mostly, remember that video that Trump finally. I think he tweeted out hours after his MAGA mob had attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Remember that where he essentially said, oh, we love you, but go home. You're very special. Right. Yes. We love you very much, but stop trying to attack the Capitol, which he never actually said it that directly either. Well, apparently they had to do like six different takes of that video because reportedly Trump wouldn't say what they needed him to say. As I understand it, the documents that the House Select Committee will now be getting from the National Archives actually includes the videos of those original takes. I really hope they do, because they're going to have a hard time claiming that uh, Trump didn't say and do those things, whatever's in those uh, those videos they didn't use. Because they'll be on video. Right. So that's something fun to look forward to, hopefully, as AP reports that the committee has already begun to receive records that Trump had wanted secret that, according to uh, Congressman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, and uh, he's the chair and Rep. Liz Cheney, the Republican from Wyoming. She's the vice chair. The Supreme Court's action tonight, uh, they said Thompson and Cheney said in a joint statement, uh, the Supreme Court's action tonight is a victory for the rule of law and American democracy. Well, we could use a victory for both. They said that uh, the uh, the, uh, victory will allow them to uncover all the facts about the violence of January 6th and its causes. Alone among the justices, only Clarence Thomas said he would have granted Trump's request to keep the documents on hold. Trump's attorneys had asked the high court to reverse rulings by uh, the federal appeals court in Washington and block the release of the records even after Joe Biden had waived the executive privilege over them. In the unsigned opinion, the court's eight to one majority acknowledged there are, quote, serious and substantial concerns over whether a former president can win a court order to prevent disclosure of certain records from his time in office in a situation like this one. But the court noted that the appeals court determined that Trump's assertion of privilege over the documents would fail, would fail under any circumstances, quote, even if he were the incumbent. So they didn't even have to get to the question of whether a former president has any sort of executive privilege to block the release of documents. The court said that the issue um, about the former president's ability to claim that privilege would therefore have to wait for another day. So they didn't even need to decide on that. So Trump or some other president could try again under a different circumstance. But for now, the court ruled that these documents cannot be blocked and would even need to be turned over to the House committee, even if Trump was still in office. And in case there's any QAnon supporters listening or Republicans, I should note Trump is no longer in office just for clarity. So, yeah, a stinging defeat for the former 
president that hopefully really ruined his day and his week and maybe the entire new year for him so far. And if it didn't, there's more to come. Uh, This decision was interesting uh, on a number of levels, including this one. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was rammed onto the court by the Republicans after they unilaterally did away with the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. Uh, Kavanaugh wrote separately in this uh, opinion to argue that while in this case, even if Trump was president, he would have to turn over these particular documents, but that, quote, a former president must be able to successfully invoke the presidential communications privilege for communications that occurred during his presidency, even if the current president does not support the privilege claim. Concluding otherwise, wrote Kavanaugh, would eviscerate the executive privilege for presidential communications. Now, why that matters after a president is out of office? Well, I guess that's something that uh, he does go on to somewhat argue in an opinion that was longer than the actual majority opinion here. But Kavanaugh, who is a Trump appointee, uh, he did not object to the outcome on Wednesday. Uh, Neither, by the way, did the other two justices that Trump uh, jammed onto the court, Gorsuch and Coney Barrett. But the reason... That this special separate opinion uh, was interesting to me, coming from Kavanaugh, of all people. Um, Brett Kavanaugh worked in the White House under George W. Bush. He may have a particular interest in trying to maintain executive privilege for documents from former presidents to block the release of, you know, certain documents for certain reasons, no matter how, uh, pardon the pun, Tortured, those reasons may be. Mm, I see. In he might event, have. He might have a personal reason for. Yes, perhaps. Perhaps he might. In any event, in this case, at least, uh, there was full agreement between both the executive branch and the congressional branches of government that the court uh, wisely decided to stay out of, and so no, there is no executive privilege. For these documents, hundreds of them, perhaps thousands of them, and the House committee is already reviewing them today, purportedly. Which brings us to the first piece of fun breaking news on Thursday. The bipartisan House committee investigating the insurrection is asking Ivanka Trump, daughter of the disgraced former one term twice impeached president, to voluntarily cooperate as lawmakers make their first attempt to arrange an interview with a Trump family member. The committee sent a letter on Thursday requesting a meeting in February with Ivanka, who served as a White House advisor to her father. Uh, In the letter, the committee chair, Benny Thompson, said Ivanka Trump was in direct contact with her father during key moments on January 6, 2021 when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. According to information already obtained by the committee, apparently Ivanka twice personally walked in and spoke to her dad uh, in the dining room just off the Oval Office as the deadly riot was underway while he was said to be gleefully watching it all play out on TV. She walked in there to try twice to get him to call it off following the rally near the White House where Trump had urged supporters to, quote, fight like hell. 
As Congress convened to certify the 2020 election results that day, the committee says it wants to discuss what Ivanka knew about her father's efforts, including a telephone call they say she witnessed to pressure then-Vice President Mike Pence to reject the results on January 6th, as well as concerns that she may have heard from Pence's staff members of Congress and the White House Counsel's Office about those efforts. Testimony obtained by the committee indicates that members of the White House staff requested your assistance on multiple occasions to intervene in an attempt to persuade President Trump to address the ongoing lawlessness and violence on Capitol Hill, Thompson wrote in his letter. The letter is the committee's first attempt to seek information from inside the Trump family. Now, earlier this week, you'll recall the committee issued subpoenas, not invitations in these cases, but subpoenas to Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, other members of Trump's legal team who filed meritless court challenges to the election that falsely claimed that it had been stolen from Trump with fraud. As I said, a very bad week for the Trump family, and that doesn't even include what we discussed yesterday on the show about the actual and vast bank insurance and tax fraud that the New York Attorney General has found that the family, including Donald and Don Jr. and Eric and, yes, Ivanka, were all involved in for years even before they got to the White House. A very, very bad week for the Trump crime family. The letter from Benny Thompson to Ivanka also mentioned a message in the days before the scheduled vote certification uh, on January 6th between an unidentified, this is interesting, an unidentified member of the House Freedom Caucus to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows with an explicit warning, quote, if POTUS allows this to occur, we're driving a stake in the heart of the federal republic. What? Someone in the Wingnut House Freedom Caucus was opposed to stealing the election for Donald Trump? Maybe. Maybe. Unless we get more information, uh, more context, it's hard to know. That person could have been in favor of driving a stake in the heart of the federal republic. <laughs> Excellent point. So don't be so fast to judge, this is true. Desi Doyen. Thompson writes in the letter, we are particularly interested in this question. Why didn't White House staff simply ask the president to walk to the briefing room and appear on live television to ask the crowd to leave the Capitol. So, interesting. That's what they want to talk to Ivanka about. Now, this is an invitation, unlike the subpoenas that were sent to Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. For example, Bannon refused the subpoena on the basis that the uh, that Trump told him his conversations, even though he hadn't worked at the White House for years, that those were covered by executive privilege. And you'll recall that he was referred to the DOJ for contempt of Congress, and he has since been indicted for that. Meadows, uh, Trump's former chief of staff, similarly ducked the committee's subpoena to give testimony. Uh, he was similarly referred to the DOJ for contempt, though no charges have yet come down. It's been about six weeks. What's the holdup, Merrick Garland? That could change any time, any minute. He could be indicted. It should come soon. I'm not sure what the holdup is, particularly following the Supreme Court decision on Wednesday that executive privilege does not seem to apply here. The executive privilege that all of these folks were trying to hide behind. So, uh, you know, we'll see. But it's seemingly uh, one less defense that they have. It was really the only defense they have for, for those who are subpoenaed. 
relying on this idea of uh, executive privilege, that seems to be gone now after the Supreme Court ruling on Wednesday. There is still attorney-client privilege, but that cannot be used to hide evidence of a crime. And, of course, Mark Meadows was not Donald Trump's attorney. Ivanka, meanwhile, has only been requested to talk to the committee. If she declines to do so, well, then she could be subpoenaed. I don't know what privilege she would be able to invoke other than the Fifth Amendment privilege to avoid talking to the committee. But, you know, now that her daddy's Supreme Court has ruled that even Trump's own documents while serving as president cannot be withheld from the committee, I'm not sure what defenses these people have left. So, yes, a very, very bad week for the Trump Trump crime family, but it got even worse on Thursday for them. The criminal investigation and hopefully indictment that I always thought would be the first one to come down since uh, he left office, uh, it, it, it should certainly be the easiest one to bring, I would think. Well, uh, that investigation broke some news today as well. The Georgia prosecutor looking into the attempts to steal the 2020 election by Trump and others has now asked for a special grand jury to aid the investigation. Yes, for those who a few months ago thought that the Georgia investigation into the conspiracy to steal the election in the Peach State was not moving forward, well, uh, apparently it is very much moving forward at this point. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis on Thursday sent a letter to Fulton County Superior Court Judge Uh, Chief Judge Christopher Brasher asking him to impanel a special grand jury. She wrote in the letter that her office, quote, has received information indicating a reasonable possibility that the state of Georgia's administration of elections in 2020, including the state's election of the president of the United States, was subject to possible criminal disruptions, end quote. She declined to speak about the specifics of her investigation uh, today, but in an interview with uh, AP earlier in the month, she confirmed that the criminal probe's scope includes, but is not limited to, a January 2 phone call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a November 2020 phone call between U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham and Raffensperger. Yes, Graham could also be indicted as part of this conspiracy. It includes the abrupt resignation of the U.S. attorney in Atlanta on January 4, 2021, and comments made during December 2020 uh, legislative committee hearings in Georgia on the election when folks like Rudy Giuliani lied about fraud in Georgia's election. You'll recall early in this investigation, Willis had hired an expert in racketeering in RICO conspiracy cases as part of her team. And there does seem to be a, uh, a pretty large conspiracy here that she is now looking at. A Trump spokesperson uh, has, of course, dismissed all of this as a politically motivated witch hunt. There you go. <laughs> Graham has also denied any wrongdoing. In a statement on Thursday, Trump said that his call to Raffensperger was, see if this sounds familiar, quote, perfect. <laughs> That would be the perfect call in which he threatened Raffensperger with potential legal action if he didn't, quote, find just enough votes to flip the state's election results 
uh, from Biden to him. Perfect. Apparently, special grand juries, uh, which are not very often used in Georgia, are able to help the uh, investigation of uh, com- complex matters. They do not have the power to return an indictment, but they can make recommendations to prosecutors on criminal prosecutions. Willis said that the grand jury, special grand jury, is needed because it can serve a longer term than a normal grand jury. It can also Uh, be able to focus on this investigation alone instead of looking at a whole bunch of other ones at the same time as not special grand juries do. It would allow them to focus on the complex facts and circumstances of this case. She also asked that a superior court judge be appointed to assist and supervise the special grand jury in its investigation. She is serious. She took office in January of 2021. At that time, she sent letters to top elected officials in Georgia uh, in February, instructing them to preserve records related to the general election, particularly any evidence of attempts to influence election officials. The probe includes, quote, potential violations of Georgia law prohibiting the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and state and local government bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. According to the letters that she sent out to officials back in February, threats like the one that Trump gave Raffensperger when he told him he could be in big trouble if he didn't change the election results. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Willis uh, is a longtime prosecutor. She's repeatedly said she's very aware of the public, intense public interest in this uh, probe, but she will not be rushed. She told the AP that a decision on whether to seek charges in the case could come in the first half of this year. In her letter to the uh, to the judge, Willis said that her office has learned that people who have may have tried to influence George's elections have had contact with the Secretary of State, the State Attorney General, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. Therefore, her office is now the only one with the authority to investigate these matters that is not also a potential witness in the case. So I told you before the the end of the year, the walls are very much closing in on Trump. And I know I heard from folks via email and so forth, bradcast at bradblog.com, telling me, yeah, 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 we've heard that before, Brad. When are they going to close? Well, uh, you know, it has obviously seemed like that for years, but really, the walls really, really, really are closing in on Donald Trump. In Georgia, in New York, in Washington, D.C., he can keep running, but he can't keep hiding. Not forever, at least I think. Green News Report is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Nelly. 
<laughs> the news just keeps coming and coming and coming, don't oh, it? Oh, inc- indeed it does. Well, we're trying our best to keep up with it, trying our best to help you understand it, make sense of it, because uh, there's so many people out there lying to you about it. So, hope we helped. Uh, and now, we hope we help in Desi Doyen's latest Green News Report. It's clear to me that, uh, that we're going to have to uh, probably... Uh, Break it up. Biden floats breaking up his Build Back Better bill. Authorities in the Pacific island of Tonga say the country is facing an unprecedented disaster. Volcanic eruption and tsunami caused widespread devastation in Tonga. Plus, Exxon pretends to care about the climate. All of that pretend caring and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Why do all people that think pro wrestling is real think climate change is a hoax? It's not a hoax. <laughs> yeah, okay. Facebook's lying to me every day for no reason. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, after months and months and months and months of trying, well, it looks like the Build Back Better bill is going to be broken and built back in itty-bitty pieces. It does appear so. President Biden, in a press conference on Wednesday marking his first full year in office, acknowledged for the first time that his climate and social safety net spending bill, known as Build Back Better, may have to be broken into pieces, along with other potential changes, to appease obstructionist Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of the coal state of West Virginia. The vote of every Senate Democrat is necessary for passage of the $1.75 trillion bill to become law. Biden said talks are ongoing with a number of senators. I think it's it's clear that we would be able to get support for the the $500 plus billion for uh, energy and the environmental issues that are there. I think we can break the package up, get as much as we can now and come back and fight for the rest later. So he's saying that one of the things that he believes they can salvage is the $555 billion for climate action. Right. I I hope he's right, because, boy, I sure think that Joe Manchin wants to take that out of the bill. Good point. On the other hand, Joe Biden knows better what's going on, so I will defer to him. I will be delighted if that passes in any form. It's important to note that the bill's roughly $500 billion in funding for climate would be spread out over 10 years. So that's only about $50 billion a year versus the $700 billion every year that goes to the Defense Department. Correct. Actually, more than $700 billion. In other news, residents of Tonga are grappling with the disaster wrought by a catastrophic volcanic eruption over the weekend that devastated the Pacific Island nation with a tsunami and volcanic ash, both of which have contaminated scarce drinking water supplies. But there is also a climate factor. Volcanic eruptions emit sulfur dioxide gas, and large eruptions in the past have had a temporary cooling effect on the global climate. That's good news. But scientists say preliminary data so far indicates that this eruption is unlikely to do so. So unfortunately, no, it is not going to buy us any extra time by slowing the accelerating pace or impacts of human-caused global warming. On the other hand, finally a natural disaster that is not caused by climate change? Yeah. 
Also, the tsunami generated by the eruption was so powerful that it caused a devastating oil spill on the beaches of Peru, thousands of miles away across the Pacific Ocean. Because of course it did. Meanwhile, extreme heat records are falling in the southern hemisphere. In South America, Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil tied or broke all-time national heat records over the past few weeks, straining electric grid infrastructure and devastating crops. Australia also hit a new all-time high national record, tying the all-time hottest temperature ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere at 123 degrees Fahrenheit. 123 degrees. Yep, the last 45 years have all been hotter than the 20th century average. As man-made global warming continues its relentless progression, that means that anyone born after 1976 has never experienced normal temperatures. They are Totally lying to us on Facebook. Oil giant ExxonMobil this week announced that it will work to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, but only in its operations. Uh Exxon made no commitment to reduce the lion's share of its emissions tied to Exxon's actual business, known as Scope 3 emissions. Those are emissions that come from the actual burning of oil and gas the company ships to market, which makes up about 80% of Exxon's actual emissions. So they're going to cut emissions of their actual operation that creates the stuff that actually creates all of the emissions that is causing the problem we're having. Exactly. Smartly done, Exxon. Finally, some good news. South Australia set a new renewable energy generation record in late December. The state's solar and wind farms and rooftop solar systems together supplied more than 100% of electricity demand for a full week straight. So there's that. Well, there's that, one week at a time. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. It was a good week, lost in the shuffle of a constant Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. We will take what we can get, won't we? <laughs> Indeed we will. <laughs> These days, brother. All right. Thanks much, uh, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night or week with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other that we have ever done, you can download all of them for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who help support our work And please do by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thanks in advance. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It was a good week. Lost in the shuffle of a constant. It was a good week. But don't.